John chapter 20. We are going to read verses 24 through verse, well, to the end of the chapter, through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. And as I pray, I want to ask you to pray with me that these words, if this is true, this last thing we read, that, that these words, these things are written so that you may believe, and that believing you would have life in his name. I want us to pray, like David did in Psalm 119, that God would show us wonderful things from his word. That's what I want you to pray with me. So church is always participatory, and prayer is participatory this morning. Father, we come before you and thank you again uh, for this day. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for this message we're about to hear. Lord, I pray that it would come from your spirit, that it would land in our hearts in the way that we need it to. And Lord, you are in charge of that. So we are asking that you would open eyes, you would open ears, you would soften calloused hearts, that you would bring life to those that feel like we're on life support, that you would bubble up in a hundred different ways that you know need to happen. Lord, we ask that you would show us wonderful things from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the the reason we're doing this as a sermon at the end of the year, and we started reading about Thomas and doubt, is because the title of my sermon is, When in Doubt, Read Your Bible. But the reason that I wanted to talk about doubt is, as we just truck right along into the 21st century, as we just keep on moving into a post postmodern world where truth is a relevant, or excuse me, a relative item. Uh, truth is challenged all the time uh, as whether or not there is even such a thing as true. One of the more popular little hashtags or one of the more popular sayings, and it's been popular for decades now, just we have new platforms and new words to use to express it. And the, this little truth uh, saying that you hear a lot today is, you've got to speak your truth. How many of you have heard this before? This is not from a Christian source. This is from a uh, maybe Oprah or whoever else it would be. I'm not 
hip enough to give you somebody younger than that. Uh, but somebody out there, you have heard the expression that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Raise your hand. You've heard this. You're familiar with the concept. Um, in other words, it may be true for you, but that doesn't mean it's true for me. Don't you push your truth onto me. That's the general idea. It's okay for you. That's fine. Leave me alone. Of course, we are, as we push into the 21st century, getting to the place where, actually, I don't think it's okay for you to believe that. You need to believe what I believe. So we're, we're starting to see uh, a reverb on this idea. We are in a strange place in history philosophically and culturally, where people uh, don't like the idea of truth unless, of course, it fits a particular cultural accepted belief system. We're fine with that. I always tell, when I talk to my kids and they get to hear all kinds of lectures, I'm the worst possible kind of father because I am a dad, like, and I've got all the qualities that dads have, and every dad is already prone to bring lectures and dad talks, right? All my dads know what I'm talking about. But I'm also a pastor, so they get like this extra series of lectures. Um, so they just have to endure the withering, nonstop lecturing that I give them. And even though I promised myself I wouldn't do that to my kids, I just can't help it. So one of the things that they, they hear from me all the time is, is, is we talk about this idea of truth. And I remember telling either Abby or Hannah or one of them uh, that when you hear people talk this way, that your truth is okay and my truth is okay, and we, you know, there's but there's not really a truth. Um, but I always say they don't actually believe that. Nobody actually believes that. And and here's how I know that they don't believe it, because none of them will step out in front of a bus. Because if your truth is that stepping out in front of a bus isn't going to hurt or result in something terrible happening, uh, it doesn't matter what your truth is. The objective reality of the bus hitting you is going to obliterate whatever you thought was true because here is what we know is true. The bus is bigger than you are. Or you can use it this way. If you, if you would like to tell a police officer that uh, I interpreted... 35 miles an hour, in my truth, is actually 70 because I was late for work. So, so I don't need a ticket because obviously your truth may be 35 and the sign may say 35, but for me, in my situation, 70 was okay. You're going to get a ticket. You may get something worse because it's pretty annoying if you tried to say that to a police officer. I'm saying all that because when I read this passage in John, where Jesus has been raised from the dead, which we are claiming is, is objective truth, it is the ultimate truth, it is the basis of all reality, is God became flesh with the express purpose of dying for our sin so that we could have eternal life. That is the whole reality of the Christian faith, and it's not just the Christian faith, we claim that it is the only reality that matters. It's, it's not whether you believe it or not. If you, if you don't believe it, you're in trouble, is what we're saying as Christians. Not believing this is death. It is eternal 
damnation outside of Christ. This is, this is reality with which we, we must contend that we've got to deal with what this is saying. And, and I love that the Bible doesn't hide doubt. And I've always loved that about this particular part of the story, that one of the guys with Jesus, and he gets a really bad rap, he gets called Doubting Thomas, right? Thomas, we all know him as that. Of course, later he goes and evangelizes India, which is great. But Thomas here, we all know him as the doubting disciple because he wasn't there when the other disciple saw Jesus uh, raised from the dead. And he, he says, unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. You guys have seen it, but I, I haven't seen it yet. You guys have seen this thing, and you're claiming that it happened, but, but and you've got to think, these guys were depressed and in despair because Jesus was with them for three years and they witnessed incredible miracles. They witnessed incredible stuff. They witnessed Jesus walking on water, feeding the 5,000. They witnessed Jesus healing lepers and the blind. They witnessed Jesus casting out demons. If you were with Jesus and walked into a crowded room of Pharisees, in a, in a temple setting, and a guy over here started screaming out because he's demon-possessed, and Jesus tells the demon to shut up and to leave, and it does, and then he rebukes the Pharisees and teaches and gives... If you were there for that, you, you would be like, we have we found the guy. We have found the guy. We, this guy is wonderful. This, this is the Messiah, and in their mind... He is coming to liberate us from Roman oppression. That's what they, they would have, they would have been so gung-ho in that regard, even though they kept being corrected. I think that the disciples are like, yeah, but Jesus, don't you see what you're doing? We know what's best here. We know what's really going on, Jesus. We know that you're coming to liberate us from the Romans. There's this spiritual kingdom stuff. This, yes, that's great. But the real deal is the fact that there are Romans sitting in our cities and our capitals and and they're oppressing our people. So when he is crucified by these same Romans, they were all in despair. Thomas, having not yet seen, is in despair, he's in depression, he is in doubt. Does that mean he was not a believer in who Jesus was? No. It means that he encountered what a lot of people encounter when they experience something difficult or something that shakes up the way that they think, or maybe it's a long process of that, the slow boiling away of your trust in God. So that when the disciples say, we have seen him, he says, not until I can touch the nail holes am I going to believe. This lets you know that he's a real person. These guys were not floating around on clouds totally different from us. Thomas says something that a lot of people would say. I would say, uh, I mean, he gets kind of graphic. I want to put my finger in the hole. That is the, that, so I hear in that just an angry frustration in the midst of his doubt. You guys are telling me he's raised from the dead. I, I want to touch the hole where the nail was. 
Now here is what I love that Jesus does. First of all, it's, a, it's another miracle. It's uh, verse 26. Eight days later, so there's an eight-day period where Thomas is stewing in his own frustration. Jesus didn't make it better immediately. They're all together again. He's with these guys that have already annoyed him, talking about him being raised from the dead. The doors are locked, and Jesus just is there. He just is there in the middle of the room. This is in that 40-day period after his crucifixion. There's this 40-day window where he is here on the earth before he ascends in the heaven, which is where Acts picks up. So in that 40 days, that's where we're at, Jesus stands there and he looks straight at Thomas and says, put your finger here. So Jesus is holding out his hand with a hole in it. Put your finger here. The hole in his side is where the spear entered, where they were supposed to break their legs, but they didn't break Jesus' legs. Instead, they just stabbed him to make sure that he was dead up under and says blood and water flowed. And he asked Thomas, here's the hole in my side. I said this last Sunday and I will say it again. When we go to heaven, these scars will still be present. They'll still be there. Jesus wasn't a mythical, mystical creature. Jesus was and is the God-man. 100% human, 100% God, simultaneously, at the same time. If you need a fancy word, it's the hypostatic union of Christ. He is 100% God, 100% man. We will see him the way Thomas saw him on this day. Look at his answer, verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. One of, the, one of the proofs that the early church believed that Jesus Christ was God and not a God or a lower being is here that Thomas instantaneously recognizes this is God in the flesh because he calls him my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God is merciful to Thomas in the way that he comes to him and says, here I am. I think a lot of people would love if that's the way Jesus appeared to everybody. If Jesus would just show up in the bedroom of my cousin who doesn't believe and did what he did here for Thomas, that would solve all the problems. But Jesus says here something really important when he says, you've seen and you believe, but blessed are those who are in this future that I am about to launch you disciples into, that they don't see, yet because you are preaching the gospel, they will believe. Now, we've got to be careful with a text like this because... It is our tendency 
to say that well, what, what's being said here is that you just have to have faith, which is true, but that faith is some kind of leap into the dark that has no grounded reality behind it. It's just a blind leap in the dark. It's a blind trust that is not based on anything other than maybe a feeling or religious experience. I had goosebumps at youth camp, therefore I know that this must be true. How many of you went to church youth camp? Raise your hand loud, loud and proud. Look at all the youth camp people that have experienced. How many of you know what the youth camp experience is? You get super duper excited about Jesus. You're super duper excited for about a week, and then you forget that you went to youth camp. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? That's kind of the way it works. When I was growing up, you went to youth camp, you came back, you tried to shame all the adults for being fuddy-duddies, uh, and you got up in front, you shouted and danced and clapped and cheered, and you were, you were serious about God, um, and then two weeks later, you were maybe back at a party somewhere. So that's kind of the way that uh, I remember youth camp working. Not that youth camps are bad, we do them, uh, but, but having some kind of an experience where you're you feel like faith in Jesus is a leap in the dark into just, I just believe because I feel a thing. I have a warm, fuzzy, nostalgic feeling. A lot of times, and I say this, I, I hope it's not offensive to anybody watching online or listening to me here, but a lot of times what I notice is uh, people get into their uh, college years, they leave, they, they quit coming to church, and then they, they come back later because maybe some things have happened and they're looking for the warm fuzzy they had when they were 14, maybe. Whatever the case is, being a Christian is not a warm feeling, a leap of faith blind in the dark. Believing in Jesus Christ is a spiritual reality that is life-altering. Not because you decide to make it life-altering, but because you surrender to Christ and He alters you, is why it's life-altering. Look at the very next verse, verse 30, and this is why I'm saying what I'm saying. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in, the, in this book. But these are written, the stuff I have written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. These things are written so that you may believe. These things are written so that you may believe. These, these things are written in this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Christianity is not a leap into the dark. Christianity is faith in the literal, risen Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is what it is. And the reality of, of that information is found in Scripture. The Scripture is written so that you may believe. Now, this opens a floodgate of things that I can't address in a single sermon. Like, well, how do you know the Bible's true? Like, that question comes up. Well, here's, 
I'm going to give you as brief of an example of presuppositional apologetics that I possibly can. That sounds really fancy, right? Everybody operates on presuppositions. Everybody comes into every conversation and every relationship with presuppositions. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Presuppositional apologetics is, is simply this. I am presupposing that there is a God. And the reason I'm presupposing there is a God is because there is a sunrise. And because there is a bird out there on a branch. And because there are human beings in these seats. I'm presupposing there's a God because Romans chapter 1 says that the creation makes it plainly known to everyone that there is a creator. And no matter how hard we try to explain it in some other method, you ultimately wind back wind up going all the way back into some kind of nothingness where something has to start somewhere. And how do you get the start? Where does the start come from? We believe that God ex nihilo created out of nothing because He is the eternal God of creation outside of creation, not limited by natural laws of any kind. He is the author of them. He is the King, the Lord. He is God. And just following Richard Dawkins or anybody else in the radical modern atheism stuff, trying to figure out what they're trying to describe, they're trying to come up with an explanation of the beginning of the universe, and it always comes back to spontaneous something, somehow, somewhere, did this thing randomly that randomly created things that somehow, someway, did this other thing, and here you are, Darwin. It's the best thing we got. You are stardust mixed together, doing what random, random chemical fizzes do when chemicals fizz when they get together. You are nothing but a random nothing accident. And we know this isn't true. Our souls demand a different answer. Because the Bible says God has placed eternity in our hearts. And we know something about that explanation is wrong. To quote the great philosophers August Burns read, if everything is relative, then why the emptiness in our souls? Here, where Jesus is restoring Thomas in his faith and telling us that these things are written so that we may believe, I am presupposing that there is a God and He is the author of creation and that this word that He gave us is His revelation to mankind so that we may believe. And the proof of that is in the pudding, which is the lives of people that are transformed by what Christ has done. My encouragement for us this morning is one, some of you are like, well, I already believe, Pastor Steve. Well, I know there's people watching, who knows where, that, that don't. But it's to encourage us in what we believe because doubts are going to come even if you've seen Jesus walk on water. Doubts are going to come even if you've seen Jesus cast out demons and heal lepers, which nobody was doing, by the way. Doubts are going to come to Christians. 
I fight with doubts all the time. Sometimes the doubt is a really clear argument, and sometimes the doubt is a nebulous feeling of foggy unknowing. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You, you get both. You get clear argumentative doubts, and you also just get a despair-oriented, ugh, just like, ugh. So when I read this, that this is written that we may believe, it gives me hope. Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 6. Same book, same author. Same group of guys. Thomas is in this group. Verse 60 of John chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, I love that the word grumbling is in the Bible, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now let's stop right there. What is it that the disciples are upset about? Because John chapter 6, if you start from the beginning, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and if you were there and you were one of his disciples on his ministry team, you would be like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. He took a couple pieces of bread and some fish and fed 5,000 men, which means at least... 10 to 15,000 total people. This is, the, this is crazy what Jesus did. And after that, he walks on water away from the crowd of people that he just impressed as he taught them and fed them. And now they're back amongst that crowd of people. And Jesus knows that they, they are there not because they believe in him per se, but because they like the show. They want to see more miracles. They want to see some stuff. Are there people like that in church? Unfortunately, yes. They want to see some stuff. Look at verse 53. Let me give you an example of what the disciples start grumbling about. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Just put yourself in the position of the crowd hearing what he's saying. They're all Jewish. Blood is nothing you touch or eat. Listen to, listen to what he's saying in that context. Whoever, Verse uh, 56, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And when the disciples heard it, they start grumbling and saying, this is a hard saying. This is the disciples that say it. Not the crowd that's saying it. The disciples say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
Let me give you a modern translation of this. Jesus, the church is really growing. People think that you are the coolest pastor in town. People think what you've got to say is great. You are doing really awesome things. Your ministry is great. It's growing. It's expanding. We need to set up some organizational charts, flow charts, so we can figure out how to maximize the impact you're having. That's what we need to do. We need some messages that really appeal to the needs of the people. And the needs of the people certainly don't include this eating your flesh sermon. This drinking your blood stuff is not going to cut it, Jesus. This is ridiculous. Why would you draw a big crowd and then apparently, purposefully try to run them out the door? Because that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus is the worst church growth person of all time. Here I've got a sermon for you. It's going to be on eating my flesh and drinking my blood. That is what, that's what happens. The disciples are disappointed. Now they don't realize and recognize what I hope you do. This is a really good verse for taking communion and what we're doing and partaking in the life of Christ. There's so much in there. Jesus knows that. They don't know it yet, but they will later. But the crowds who are there for miracles only, they don't want to hear truth. They just want to see some more fish get multiplied. That's what they're there for. The disciples are grumbling because we're having all this success and you're ruining it, Jesus. We know better than you, obviously. So Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I want you to note that there is a distinction in the words that Jesus has for us and regular words. Jesus said the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. That's the King James. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knows Judas is in this crowd. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus is telling them that you need spiritual, spirit-filled, Holy Ghost-empowered words to open the eyes of dead sinners' hearts. You need the Gospel. You need the Word of God, not your decision to come look at me doing miracles. This is why that big crowds or small crowds or people that appear to be very devout, all of that is just the human efforts. What really matters are the words of life from Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit 
to open the eyes of the blind. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We're not putting up with this eating your flesh sermon, Jesus. We're not putting up with uh, it requires the Holy Spirit empowering words to open up our eyes. We're not going to put up with that, Jesus. We're out of here. We do not want truth. We want warm fuzzies. And we want, ooh, wow, did you see that? That's what we're here for, Jesus. We are not here for this. Truth. This is one of my favorite moments in Scripture. Verse 67. Because the way I see this is a crowd. They're grumbling. They think they're close to Christ. So we've got the twelve and we've also got another group of people that are a part of the crowd, they all turn away and leave. And the only ones still there are the twelve. And Jesus turns to them and says, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now Peter, I believe, is numbered in the grumblers mentioned over here in verse 61. He is upset and frustrated like everybody else that Jesus has broken out a sermon that he really wished he wouldn't have done. Because that sermon offended everybody. Now Jesus, Jesus is not trying to be rude. He's trying to give truth and He's using truth to expose that you're not here for the truth, you're here for the miracles. And now what's happening when they all walk away, this giant crowd that He had just fed? Can you imagine that there are people in this crowd without eternal life in hell today that literally ate the bread that Jesus broke in this miracle. Just because we live in America and there is a church on every corner, and just because you have a mental belief in a God that's probably there, does not mean that you are a Christian. A Christian is someone who eats his flesh and drinks his blood who partakes in his life, who believes in who he is, and echoes Peter when he says, where do I go? I've got all kinds of questions, and I've got all kinds of grumblings myself, but I don't know where else I'm going to go to get the words of eternal life. You've got them. I am sticking right here with you. I'm not leaving. And then he messes that up later, right? When he denies him. The, the hope of Peter's life is really helpful because he's serious and then he fails, but he comes back and he fails and he screws up and he's restored and God, that, God's got Peter in here for a reason. We need him to help us understand that we can be gung-ho one day and an idiot the next. But that's okay because it's better to be gung-ho one day and an idiot the next than to be an idiot all the time and reject the truth, and walk away and do your own thing like this crowd did. 
2022, why am I preaching the sermon? Because if this is true, and you are a Christian, then what you should be hearing is, the words of eternal life are the sustenance that I need. If the Bible was written so that I may believe. And 1 John chapter 1 tells us that it's to complete our joy. We've written this so that our joy will be complete. That If the Word of God is this important, then my sermon this morning is this. In 2022, you should read your Bible. You should be a person of the Bible. If you are a Christian, you should read the Bible. You should memorize the Bible. If you are in your 80s, you should still be memorizing Scripture. What do I want running through my mind when dementia hits me? And since every side of my family has experienced dementia, it's very possible that I will too one day. What do I want running through my head at the very, very end when I can't remember anything? But the things that went deep into my soul, I want Scripture to be what I remember. That's what I want. What do I want when my kids come to me with something horrible? I want, when my soul is broken open, the aroma to come out to be Scripture. Because this is the only hope we've got, is the Word of God. If, these, if it's true, if it's not true, we should just shut the church down and just go do whatever we want anyway. But if it's true, and we believe and confess that it is, then we should be people of the Bible that know what it says, and we struggle with it. Like, I know some of you are struggling with verse 65. That's totally fine. We should struggle and wrestle with the stuff we don't get. We should fight in our hearts and minds. We should probably spend more time crying over these things. But we should not let them go, and we should not let them out of our sight. We should make it a part of our life. Where else do you go? These are the words of eternal life. There is more impact and power in these words because they're eternal words. They're not regular words. Shakespeare is awesome. I really enjoy Frank Hebert's book, Dune, and the movie that just came out. It's fantastic. Love good stories, but none of those things have eternal life in them. These words do. So read it. I've got a, back there on the spec table, I've got read through the Bible in a year. I've got the plan. Some of you organized people that are weird need that. Use it. If you like lists, you like check them off, like Monica's a checker, right? You, like, you have a list, okay. So that thing, that you could just check to your heart's content all the way through the year. You'd be like, I'm accomplishing something. Me, when I see checklists, I feel hopeless and despair. I don't know why. Checklist just, I don't, I'm just, I would rather just do what I want to do in the moment that I want to do it. I don't know if there's anybody, anyway, Jennifer's not in here, so I can say that, because she's a checklist, and God typically puts non-checklist and pro-checklist in the same marriage. I don't know why he does that. Point number two, and we'll be done. If you're hearing this and you're not a Christian, it's obvious what I'm trying to get across to you, and that is there is an objective truth, and that truth is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was born in a manger, took on flesh for the express purpose of destroying the works of the devil, which is sin, which dominates your life, which cuts you off from God, 
which makes you not a good person, not even remotely a good person. There is none righteous, no, not one. We have all gone astray. We've all turned aside to do our own thing and instead come to the mercy seat that Jesus provides through the cross by dying for your sin, raised from the dead on the third day, that all who believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That is what I'm trying to get at. So, if you're a Christian, read the Bible. If you're not a Christian, I challenge you to read it. Get some of these eternal words floating around in your heart. But believe and repent. and Turn your heart to Christ. Amen. Let's everybody stand up. We are going to be dismissed. I do want to challenge everybody to read through the Bible in 2022. If you've never done it, um, you should do it. If you've done it before, you should do it again. And again and again and again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the mercy you demonstrated to Thomas. He doubted. You, you told them that you were going to destroy the temple and three days later rebuild it. You told them on the night you were betrayed what was going on. You, you told them and he didn't believe but you were merciful to him. Lord, you were merciful to Peter who grumbled but believed, later denied you but repented. God, I pray that you would do your work in our hearts. We are all somewhere on the spectrum of our walk with you. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be changed by the power of your Spirit, that you would take the word that we've heard all of our lives, that you would breathe life on it, that you would bring it to life, that you would make it more real than it currently is. God, I pray that our desires would be conformed to what is pleasing to you and we would want these eternal words. Lord, we thank you for it. Pray that everybody would have your blessing, Lord, in this final week of the year with we see family and everybody else. God, we thank you for all of it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed. Merry Christmas one more time. Say goodbye to somebody as we go.